We're going to talk about the book of Jonah this morning. How many of you have got a Bible? Uh, if you've got a Bible, raise your hand, show me your Bible. How many of you have got your Bible on your phone or your iPad because you're so cool? Just raise that. Okay. How many of you have not got either one, but you just want to pretend you've got one? Okay. Um, we're going to turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Now, as we turn to this passage, um, perhaps you know the story well, but just in case, uh, let me give you a kind of 90-second overview of the first three chapters of the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, do you remember that God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh? And Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh. Jonah wants to go on a cruise. And so he goes on a cruise to Tarshish, and uh, there is a great storm. He is thrown overboard, and he is swallowed by the big fish. End of chapter 1. Uh, chapter 2, uh, Jonah is praying from the belly of this big fish. It's the weirdest prayer meeting you've ever seen. He's inside the stomach of the fish, and the fish gets nauseated by Jonah. And so, obedient to the Lord, the fish throws up and uh, vomits, and Jonah lands on the beach, end of chapter 2. In chapter 3, uh, Nineveh becomes revival town. Uh, Jonah preaches possibly the shortest sermon in the history of sermons. It lasted for about 20 seconds, just one sentence. How many think that some sermons should just be one sentence and 20 seconds. Well, he preaches this short but the most successful sermon, and the entire city repents and turns to God. That's the end of chapter 3. And so when you get to Jonah chapter 4, you, you would expect Jonah to be really excited. But here's what we read. Jonah chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious of God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. <coughs> but God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said, I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city. Some years ago, um, I, uh, I was traveling to San Jose in California to preach at a church there. 
and I had to connect through Los Angeles Airport. And that was about a four-hour connection time. And I'm not crazy about airports. I don't really like them. Airports are emotional black holes because they are filled with people who are only there because they want to be somewhere else. And so I'm sitting in one of those plastic bucket seats that they have in airports. They are designed by demonized people. And I'm sitting there, and I'm just trying to do some work. And suddenly, I heard the airport announcer make a special announcement. He said, Paging Passenger Lucas, Paging Phoenix Passenger Lucas, you need to go immediately to gate 28A where your plane is waiting to depart. And then the guy seemed really irritated. He said, you are delaying the departure of this plane. And I jumped up and I, I felt nervous and agitated and guilty. And I could imagine all the other passengers ritually burning my luggage on the tarmac because they were irritated with me. And so I grabbed my carry-on bags and I'm dashing through the airport. Where's gate 28A? Where's gate 28A? And suddenly I had a revelation. I'm not going to Phoenix. I'm going to San Jose. It's not me. And I'm rushing through, sweating and agitated, but I realized it wasn't me, but I couldn't just stop, you know, because I'm, I'm running. I'm looking like a man on a mission. So I just gradually slowed down. And then I pretended that I had a call on my cell phone. And I answered it and said something like, hello, President Trump, something <laughs> like that. I heard my voice being called, and I got up and ran in the wrong direction. In this story that we are looking at, it happened around 2,700 years ago, a man called Jonah heard his voice, heard his name being called, not by the voice of an irritated announcer, but by the God of the universe. But he jumps up and he runs in the opposite direction. And he finally gets in line Finally, he surrenders to the purposes of God. He preaches his one-sentence sermon, and the entire city comes to God. And as I mentioned, you would think that Jonah chapter 4 would have Jonah dancing and celebrating and headbutting a tambourine and saying to himself, I'm going to use that sermon again. That really worked rather well. But instead, we read this. Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. And I want to dig into the text a little, if I may, because the writer of this story wants us to know not only that Jonah is angry with God, he's not just angry with life, he's not just angry with his circumstances, he is angry with God. Not only that, but he is really, really angry at God. Let, let me explain why. First of all, there is a literary device in the Hebrew text. It's called a figura etymologia. A figura etymologia. Figura etymologia is a double emphasis. It's where you say something twice in the same sentence to emphasize the... And this happens throughout the book of Jonah. And so in chapter 3, they proclaim the proclamation. And in chapter 2, the sailors fear 
a great fear. And when we read in chapter 4 that Jonah was angry, the Hebrew word is ra'ah, the Bible actually says he was angry, ra'ah, with a great anger, ra'ah. In other words, the double emphasis was to let us know this guy is really irritated, absolutely furious. The second thing I want to show you is the use of the word great in the book of Jonah. You know, um, some people have favorite words that they use a lot. And in the book of Jonah, one of the favorite words is the word great. And so uh, Nineveh is a great city, and the fish is a great fish, and the storm is a great storm. And then we read that Jonah was angry with a great anger. So once again, we're seeing, man, this guy is irritated. And then the anger that Jonah has is leading him to despair. Now, O Lord, he says, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Kay and I have traveled all over the world, and we've been in lots of Christians, and you often see in a Christian home a Christian refrigerator. A Christian refrigerator is one of those refrigerators where they have those magnets on them with, with Bible verses and, and, and sayings and and John 3.16, and 1 Peter 5.7, and, and Bible quotes on a Christian refrigerator. There is one Bible verse, one prayer that I have never seen on any Christian refrigerator anywhere I've been, and it's this, Oh God, kill me now. Amen. But that's what Jonah is saying. And again, buried in the Hebrew text you see a pause in the text for effect after Jonah prays his prayer for death. Let me illustrate that. Here's how it would read to the Jewish reader. And Jonah said, take away my life, for it is better for I than to live. Pause for effect. Dun, dun, dun. You see, the writer wants us to know that there will be times, ladies and gentlemen, when, and I want to emphasize this clearly because the text emphasizes it, when we're not just irritated with other people and we're not just irritated with our circumstances, there can be times in the Christian when we're actually irritated beyond belief with God. And if that sounds a bit surprising, let's realize that the Bible is loaded with stories who got, of people who got mad with God. The psalmist, one of the most frequent or three of the most frequent prayers in the psalms go like this. Why? How long? Where have you gone? The prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, got really angry with God and cursed the day of his birth. And, and so Jonah was really angry, and here's what happens. God gets under his skin. Kay and I have been deeply impacted by you, as I've already said. And this is such an exciting church, a passionate church. But I want to make a statement that might strange. Sometimes the more exciting the church is, the more passionate the church is, there can be a greater danger that rather than pursuing our own personal relationship with Jesus, we just live off of the corporate atmosphere. 
And we get together on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning and we're jumping and we're dancing and we're excited. I told you I couldn't dance and there I've demonstrated that. And we plug in oxygen of the corporate atmosphere and it's so exciting and we raise our voices and yet somehow if we're not careful, even though that is wonderful, don't ever stop it. But there is a danger that we can plug in at the weekend and then unplug. And here we are in a situation where God is wanting to get under Jonah's skin. This is really about God. G. Campbell Morgan said, people have looked so hard at the big fish, the great fish failed to see the great God. Did you know that in the book of Jonah, there are 48 verses in total, and 39 of those verses, God is mentioned in them. This book is about the great God getting under Jonah's skin. So, so what can we learn when we feel and perhaps frustrated with God? But the first thing is this, and I said this last night, if you're writing anything down, write these points down. Um, if you would, and if you don't write them down, just pretend that you're writing them down. That'll really cheer me up and make me feel useful. Just go, yes, good. It doesn't matter whether you write anything or not. It just helps the preacher. So the first thing is this. The first point is God pursues people. God passionately pursues people. A few months ago in, um, in Colorado, a little while ago, uh, Kay and I were up in the mountains um, with some friends riding around on these four-wheelers, you know, these all-terrain vehicles. How many know what I'm talking about? You know, four wheels, yeah? And, uh, and um, we're riding along, and I, I, I'm at the back of the group, and I suddenly that the rest of the group had stopped. And, and so I slowed down and stopped, and I turned around, and there was a huge moose um, I've got a picture. It's not the most attractive animal. In, these things are crazy. They, they will charge a train, which is not intelligent. And they get kind of mad and irritated. And um, he was looking pretty calm. He's having a vegetarian snack on a tree just across um, from me. And so I stopped my ATV and I put it in reverse, reversed back so I could get a closer look and turned the engine off. And the moose just was snacking away, snacking away. It was nice. And then the moose suddenly looked up and saw me. And I think the moose said to itself, Moose, there is a British. Why don't you go and taste the British snack? And so I'm sitting there minding my own business, and suddenly the moose started charging towards me. And I felt prayerfully led to get out of there. So everybody else fired up their bikes, and they took off, and I turned my engine off and, and gave it some gas, but I'd forgotten that I was in reverse. Yeah. So the moose is charging towards me, and I reverse straight back towards him. And, and the moose stopped and looked at me. And the moose kind of went like, duh. And I could obviously, I could see the moose was thinking, you are the stupidest person I've ever met. 
What happened is that I ran, was riding in the wrong direction. In this, God has to passionately pursue Jonah. He didn't just run a couple of miles. He went to Tarshish via Joppa. Everyone say Joppa. I want you to remember Joppa. It's a, a seaport near modern Tel Aviv. And he headed about 2,000 kilometers in the wrong direction. And this was 2,600 years before the next bus. 2,000 kilometers. And he was sent northeast, but he heads southwest. God speaks, but he ignores God. He is called to get up, but he goes down. By the way, another literary device in the book of Jonah is this idea of going down. He goes down into the ship. He goes down into the belly of the whale. It's a grammatical picture of the way things were. He runs away. Sheldon Blank, who's a rabbi and a, a biblical scholar, he says, what is Tarshish? In the story of Jonah, it is anywhere but the right place. It is the opposite direction. It's the direction a person takes when they turn their back on destiny. I want to ask a question just before we move on. I mean, here you are, here all of us are in church today, but it's possible to be in church but still be running. You can bring the body in the building, but the heart can be in the far country. And Jonah is, is running away, but, but please see that God chases after Jonah. And God chases after the people of Nineveh. And, and why does God do that? It's because God is crazy in love with Jonah. And he loves the people of Nineveh. When I was in Bible college about 500 years ago, they taught us Bible students the doctrine of immutability. The doctrine of immutability is the idea that God is dispassionate. He doesn't get impacted. He doesn't get moved. He's like a British Victorian grandfather who greets his children with exuberant joy like this. Hello. And God is not like that at all. When we look in the Bible, we, we read that Hosea talks about a God whose heart churns within him. He's described as being grieved and angry and pleased and joyful and, and he dances over his people. And the prodigal son story, we sang earlier about God welcoming the prodigals. In that story, the father runs out to his returning son. Did you know that in Jesus' time, a man would never run? The reason a man would never run was it was considered to be undignified and also, it was difficult because they had a robe that went all the way down, covering their toes. And you couldn't lift your robe. That would be like going naked. The rabbis taught, I'm not making this up, the rabbis in Jesus' time taught that if a man discovered a bird beneath his robe on the Sabbath, he had to leave it there all day. Did you imagine that standing in church? What is, what's wrong with you? It's all right, I've got a bird in my, under my cloak. It's kind of awkward. 
And so when Jesus told a story about a man running out to meet his son, everybody would have been really shocked because this is the passionate God that we serve. I want to say a single person here today, however passionate we can ever be about God, God is a billion times more passionate about us. He loves us. He cares for us. And when we reach out to people, we are not just going through a strategy, but we are expressing the heartbeat and the character of God. God pursues people. The second thing is this. God at times disappoints. At times disappoints. I don't know about you, but I thought that um, that Timothy's encouragement to us earlier was great, didn't you? Encourage him. I think it was great. Yeah. And he was talking about the idea that we can have an expectation that green pastures always mean that life will be easy. And there are, there are preachers out there who will still try to suggest that if we're faithful, and especially if we give money to their ministry, then everything will be great. There are certain Christian television programs that Kay will not let me watch. And I'm not against Christian TV. I'm on Christian TV. But there are some Christian shows that she doesn't like me to watch, uh, mainly because she doesn't like breakfast cereal dripping down the front of One morning I was sitting there eating some cereal uh, and, um, and some raspberries and some yogurt. Too much information, but I just thought I'd share and I was watching some Christian TV, and this guy was driving me crazy. He was telling me that I needed to send him money. He was telling me that if I sent him money, he would break the chains of oppression in my life, and it would be green pastures from now on. And I was getting more irritated. And then suddenly, he looked straight at me. And he said, God has put something in your hand. He wants you to send to me. And I'm like, I've got cereal. <laughs> Here it comes, buddy. <laughs> I want to make a statement that might sound a bit strange because the idea that if we're faithful, it will always bring green pastures, it's a lie. There are times when God will seem disappointing. And it isn't that God is disappointing, it's just that our expectations are wrong. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. You can find the remains of Nineveh. It's at Mosul in Iraq, about 250 miles from Baghdad. And Jonah hated the... I won't, I won't stain the atmosphere of this gathering by telling you some of the terrible things that the Assyrians would do. They were horrible people wicked people, and Jonah hated them. And Jonah didn't want God to save them. He wanted God to nuke them. And God sends him to preach to them. Let me make a statement that sound like heresy. We've got to allow, if we're going to be mature believers, we've got to allow Jesus to disappoint us. Are you still with me? You say, how can that be, Pastor Jeff? Jesus spent a lot of his time disappointing people. 
He disappointed the Pharisees who wanted him to uphold all of their picky regula regulations and rules. He disappointed the entire nation of Israel who wanted him to be a military messiah who would kick out the Romans and establish thrones in Jerusalem. He disappointed Peter who didn't want him to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. He disappointed Judas Iscariot who probably set up or used the betrayal as a means of uh, trying to uh, create a confrontation between Jesus and the authorities and create the beginning of a revolution. Jesus constantly disappointed people. And if we're going to be mature believers, we have got to go through the pathway that includes disappointment. Anybody there? I've come to believe that disillusionment is a gift. Because when we're disillusioned, we lose an illusion. And it's a reality. And the world is full of illusions. It was wonderful to be at the wedding yesterday. It was so beautiful. Hollywood creates a mythical view of marriage. Have you noticed in those romantic comedies, beautiful young couple, but no one ever snores. No one, the beautiful couple, no one ever drools on the pillow. And the beautiful young couple, when they wake up in the morning, the first thing they do is exchange a long, lingering kiss. Yuck! There's no such thing as morning breath that could knock you off your feet at 50 yards. There's none of that in Hollywood. It's an illusion! But then when we get rid of the illusion and we embrace the reality, then we can start really loving. The disillusionment becomes, disillusionment is part of growing up. When you're a baby, you're born into an illusion if you're born into a healthy family. When you're three months old, do you need to use the bathroom? Well then, just do it. Just go. Someone else will take care of it. When you're a baby, are you hungry? Well, just scream. Someone will come running. You are the sent verse. Are you hungry? Just scream. Do you need to poop? Well, then just poop. You try that when you're 25. It's not going to work. You'll lose friends permanently. We need, to be we need to be disillusioned about church. So many people join a church and they think it's going to be exactly what they Because we're all consumers these days and we want things to be the way we want them to be. And then we stick around for a while and someone upsets us and someone irritates us and we sing a song we don't like and we, read a, a, we use a version of the Bible we don't like and the drums are too soft or the drums are too loud. It's too hot in here. It's too cold in here. The service time is wrong. Someone sat in my chair. The chair that Jesus gave me. So you know what happened? This happens in the UK, where we're from. It happens in America, where there are many churches to choose from. People go from church to church looking for the perfect consumer experience. But when we push through at that, and I'm going to come back to that in a few moments, and we get rid of the illusion of a church that's just about me, 
and we embrace the reality, which is a church which is about him, then we're committed. We need to allow Jesus to disappoint us. I want to pause for a moment. Maybe for some of us, for the first time in a while, there's a freedom to be actually able to say, God, I'm kind of angry with you. I want you to notice something. It says, Jonah, and he prayed. He brought his anger into his prayer experience. God knows our hearts anyway. Number three. Number three, God calls us to relentless love. God calls us to relentless love. You see, Jonah was called to love people who were quite unlike him. In the Old Testament, there are to love your neighbor, but there are 36 commands to love the stranger. Jonah didn't like these people. They were Gentiles and they were wicked. But God was calling him to reach out to them. It's been so exciting to be here 22 months ago and then to come back and to visit the youth center and to hear about you reaching out to the community. Do you know why it's so exciting? It's because you are demonstrating a passion and a commitment to look outward rather than just look inward. Do you know that the church has a tendency to look inward? Let me quickly illustrate that before we move on. There are four missions that I want to just mention in the Bible which illustrate this truth. One is this. It's the mission of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were people on a mission, but their mission was to love people like them, to make everybody like them, and they actually got to the point where not only did they love only their own people, but they hated those who were not Jews. The Pharisees would pray a prayer every day, Lord, I thank you that I am not a woman and that I am not a Gentile. They hated the Gentiles. That was the Pharisees' mission. The second mission was the across-the-boundaries mission of Jesus. And Jesus went to people who were not like him. And he went to the tax collectors. I love the story of Zacchaeus. Everybody familiar with the Zacchaeus story? Every time I read that, I think about Danny DeVito stuck up a tree. It seems like a good illustration of Zacchaeus. And he's a tax collector, and Jesus goes across the boundaries to who were not like him. And, and he goes into the temple into the temple courts, and he kicks the tables over. And everybody thinks that's because of the swindlers, the extortioners who were collecting money. And it was partly that. But in Mark's gospel, there's another hint, because Jesus is angry, and he says, this house should be a house of prayer for all the nations. And commentators believe that those money changers, tables in the courts of the Gentiles, which was the only place that the Gentiles were allowed. And Jesus was, was upset with this internalized focus, and he kicks the tables over. The third mission is the initial mission of the church in Jerusalem, the day of Pentecost. And it's amazing. And Jews from all over the world 
are turning to Christ. But I want to make a statement I find surprising. After the day of Pentecost, the church was primarily Jewish for 18 years. We read the book of Acts and we think this happened on Tuesday and that happened on Thursday and that happened the following week. No, seven years after the day of Pentecost, Peter was in a city called Joppa. Remember Joppa, where Jonah passed through? And it's there that he receives a revelation that God wants the gospel to go to the Gentiles. That's seven years after the day of Pentecost. And they've already been told to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, but they've become inward focused. And then five years after that, 12 years after the day of Pentecost, there is a revival in Antioch and Gentiles start rushing into the church. But it's not the result of the Jerusalem church's mission activities. It's just the Holy Spirit doing the work. No one planned it. No one organized it. But the impatient God said, enough of this. Let's see the people scattered and the, the uh, Gentiles come rushing into the church. And then... It's another six years before the Apostle Paul makes his first missionary journey. Here's what I want you to see. It took 18 years after the day of Pentecost for the church to become non-Jewish. That is why City Lights, and I said the same thing, thing to our friends in Collective, in KL, some of whom are here with us today. It's such a joy to see the church being outward focused because our natural tendency can be to draw back, just say, this is good, isn't this fun? But God wants us to keep reaching out. Andy Stanley says of this Jew and Gentile church, this was a head-turning, jaw-dropping, never would have imagined that we would see these people together association. It was amazing. Number four. Number four, God calls us to focus on the big picture. God calls us to the big picture. I, I love this part of the story because Jonah gets really irritated about small stuff. So he marches out of Revival Town. He sits on the east side of the city. And there's a, a vine that grows. And he's really happy because he's got his sunshade. And then it says that God provided a worm. I love that. That God spoke to a worm and said, do this. Worm chews the vine and then the wind blows and Jonah gets really ticked. Sometimes we can spend our lives getting irritated about small things that don't matter. I'm not a very practical person. If I ever put shelves up in our house, our family would gather for a time of intercessory screaming because they knew the shelves were going to fall down. We wanted to put a, a bracket on our TV for a sound bar, a sound bar. So I went to the electronics store and I spoke to the assistant who I think was about nine years old. And I said, excuse me, pre-adolescent person, um, do you think I could fit this soundbar myself? And he said, sir, any idiot could fit this soundbar. I want to find that kid because I want to tell him I'm not just any idiot. 
I spent three hours trying to do it, and it's still in pieces. And I was kind of irritated about that. Then I went out to our garage, our garage, whatever, and I've got a truck, and Kay's got a car, and I reversed my car out, and I hit her car. And as I hit her car, I said something like, oh, hallelujah. Something like that. And then I moved forward, and then I reversed back the other way, and I hit the garage. And I said something like, oh, praise the Lord. I hit two things. It was like a two-for-one special. It was amazing. And then my, my day carried on. Then a couple of days later, I was at a wedding, actually, and I put my cell phone on the floor next to me on the ground. And then I stood up, and I heard this crunching sound, and it was my phone. And I said, oh, glory to God. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I was just really like, irritated, upset. And then I thought, what, what am I doing? Someone wrote a book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. You know, one of the distractions that can happen to us in church life, we get about things that don't really matter. Don't be passionate about what doesn't matter and navigate change together well. The other night, I had a brand new experience here. It is called the hot pot. Steam bowl. Steamboat. I do. I don't even know how to describe it. I couldn't believe it. We kept eating it and it kept growing. It was like a multiplication miracle. <laughs> but every new ingredient changed the flavor. And we began with the soup, which I think was made from boiling fish heads, which is an unusual idea. And then, I mean, it tasted amazing and it kept changing. And you know, yours doesn't just change when you get a youth center or you embrace a new strategy. Did you know that your church changes every second? It is like one of those pots because every new person changes the flavor. And not only that, your church has changed in the last two seconds. And now it's changed again. Why? Because there are thoughts going through your minds. I wish I could read what your thoughts are, but maybe not. That might not be a good idea. You might be thinking, this guy doesn't even know how to describe a meal. Bless his heart. Your church changes every second as you change. So will we be a people who embrace change and don't get upset with things that don't matter? I might have shared this with you when I was here last time. But I think, you know, like if we wanted the church to be consumer-based, Pastor Daniel, you could ushers, your greeters. Felt so bad for that guy. Two hours come here today. You know, you could have greeters at the door and they could say, um, welcome to City Lights. So glad to see you. Would you like to sit in clapping or non-clapping today? Mm, had a bit of a rough week. Could I sit in non-clapping, non-singing, non-raising my hands, 
non-listening to the message, non-offering, non-participating in any way whatsoever. Could I sit in that section, please? Oh, I'm sorry, that section's always very full. I'm afraid we <laughs> couldn't possibly do that. No, so sorry. I'm just kidding you. Just kidding you. How many know that the church is not about being a consumer product to please us, but it's about being a kingdom people to please him? So next time something happens around here that you don't like, can I be tempted to just say, get over it. Get over it. It doesn't mean that we don't have opinions, that we can't express opinions. But let's not be people who are committed to the incidental, but people who are committed to the big picture. All right, one last thing I'm going to say, and then I'm going to stop talking. I promised I wouldn't preach as long today. And you're all looking very patientive, which means you're either patient and attentive or you're faking it really well. <laughs> My last point is this. Preachers often say that, Pastor Daniel. We say, and now, in conclusion. We do that to give God's people hope. That's the idea. <laughs> but I want to pick up this point because we sang about trusting God earlier. And that is that God calls us to trust and respond to him. God calls us to trust and respond to him. And uh, I don't know who's going to be coming back, but uh, Clara and uh, Evangelina, you're going to come back and play keyboard, uh, or Clara is. And uh, Elaine is, excuse me, Elaine. And uh, man, I'm getting the food wrong and the people wrong too. My wife's name is, your name is Kay? Yeah, it is Kay, right, yeah, just checking. Thanks, Elaine. And um, here's this ending to the story. And Jonah is called to trust God and God's purposes. There's something, there's one other thing I want to point out about this book. There are a couple of occasions in the book of Jonah where people say this. They say, I don't know. Who knows? And so the sailors throw Jonah overboard. Do you know what they said? They said, who knows? Maybe God will spare us. Who knows? And the king of Nineveh, when he calls the people to repent, he says, who knows? Maybe. But Jonah is the one who says, I knew. He's the guy in the know. And he's the angry guy. I want to say this as a pastor, especially to people here who've been walking through struggles. It's okay to not know. It's all right to not understand. When I was a brand new Christian a hundred years ago, I had all the answers. I was quick on the draw with an answer. The proffering, oh yes. Why weren't some people healed? I knew. But can I draw this picture for you? When I was a new Christian, my knowledge was about that big. And around the edge of that knowledge base were a few question marks clustered. I've been a Christian now for 45 years, so hopefully my knowledge has grown bigger. 
to the circle, the greater number of questions there are around the edge. Does that make sense? And some Christians feel guilty because they don't know. The Christian life is about embracing mystery. And it's not just the mystery of unanswered prayer. Answered prayer is a mystery. Why did God answer that one but not this one? What does that bring us back to? It brings us back to trust. And so the story ends with God asking a question. Shouldn't I be concerned about the great city? By the way, the Hebrew here means to have tears in your eyes. Have you ever watched a movie, ladies and gentlemen, where you thought you knew how it was going to end? And then it suddenly ends and you don't find out what happened. That's so wrong. I want to know what happened. In fact, you can get some DVDs these days where you can choose your own ending. The book of Jonah ends without an ending. God says, shouldn't I be concerned about this great city? What's Jonah going to say? Is he going to go back into revival town? Because when you're irritated about little stuff, you walk out of the arena where God is working. Is he going to go back in? Is he going to respond to God? Is he going to say, well, yes, of course, I'll trust you. And the book ends. You're like, ah, what happened? Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen, that it ended without an ending so that we could wrestle with the two and write our own endings? Will we trust God?